0: Hey, all my IFG friends, this is Steve. I want to say you know, if you like movies like I do, we've started a new podcast called Happy Hour Flicks. Uh, You can find it anywhere podcasts are found. It's all about nostalgic movies that we love, and we bring on special guests each episode, and we also have specialty cocktails made for each one, too. So it really is an hour of a good time talking about movies that we love, like Gremlins, uh, Seven, uh, Free Willy. Uh, We talk about The Last Starfighter also. I mean, we kind of run the gamut across all the decades and really have a great time. So I wanted to invite you to come over and join us. That's happy hour flicks anywhere podcasts are found.
1: The market has really changed. We're all kind of being a universal renaissance man. You're kind of a masochist, man. You started in New York, went to LA for the nice weather, and then
0: you came back to New York. Most people don't make that transfer back east. Yeah,
2: I
1: know. Some people get really addicted to the weather. This is the, the independent, 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 independent filmmaker's film. guide from
3: Framework Productions.
4: Framework, Framework
3: Productions. When it comes to finishing the last stages of your film, many indie filmmakers can run into some surprises. If you didn't plan accordingly to have enough funds and time to properly color, mix, master, and deliver the film, you might find yourself scrambling. Today, we talk with a senior colorist and a finishing producer about their journey overseeing the final touches on countless projects, including ESPN's miniseries, The Last Dance, just released on Netflix.
2: What's also unique about Last Dance is the original time frame had us delivering months later. Then of course, with the pandemic and the lack of sports, the, the void needed to be filled, and that condensed our schedule.
0: That's Stephanie Paciano. She's a finishing producer at Sim International.
1: Basically moved down to New York and started as a junior colorist at a company called Tape House. And from there, I started uh, coloring in the evenings, uh, working on music videos in the early 90s. I've been a colorist for around 30 years now. And that's Rob Sherrata, senior colorist at Sim International. And from that point, I would venture into other areas of, of color correction into feature films for Miramax, commercials. And I'm your host, Stephen Pierce. And basically I was in New York and then I relocated to Los Angeles for about 17 years and worked at a few companies out there. And then I've been back in New York now uh, for about 10 years. And the point um, that basically at that point in when, in my career where I was probably doing mostly commercials and music videos in the mid-90s. Now, at this point in time, we're branching out where we're doing documentaries, feature films, TV shows. So the market has really changed, and everyone now is basically doing every format that is out there. We're all kind of being a universal renaissance man type of workflows.
0: Yeah. You're kind of a masochist, man. You started in New York, went to LA for the nice weather, and then you came back to New York. I mean, uh, then most people don't make that transfer back East.
1: Yeah, it was, uh, I know some people get really addicted to the weather. I mean, it it was nice out there. I have a lot of friends, but, uh, you, you know, both New York and LA both have a lot of great things to offer in the post world, in the environment world. And you basically try and make the best and enjoy the best of each scenario.
0: Stephanie, how did you get to become a finishing producer?
2: Yeah, uh, an odd path for sure. I started, I studied at UConn in Storrs, Connecticut in Human Development Family Studies, was my major in communications. And, you know, knew I liked working with people, uh, got an internship at MSNBC, fell in love with TV, ended up pursuing the Page program at NBC, pre Kenneth from 30 Rock, I like to say. Then from there, just met people through the industry, joined Broadway Video, was there in their post team for 10 years, and then came over to Sim, uh, for the past two years. And all along, different avenues of production and post, a lot of once a transition to over the top digital delivery became more common, transition from tape to digital. And really, I've been focusing on the post delivery process finishing for the past years.
0: So, what is a finishing producer?
2: Yeah, it's a funny title. There's a lot of different, uh, many hats, let's just say, that covered that role. So in our world, a lot of from post working with that offline team, working with the editors, helping them foresee what they need to transition smoothly when they get to finishing and finishing being everything from color, mix, visual effects, Uh, QC through delivery. So kind of those components is what makes up the finishing end once you're in your online phase, but starting before that, starting through the offline to make sure things go through smoothly through the online phase through delivery and all the additional hiccups that come up along the way.
0: Rob, what is, and why do you need a colorist?
1: Well, basically a colorist, every, whether, And when it was first started, people, before video was active, people would shoot film. And then that film would be basically uh, need to be transferred digitally in order to transfer from film that goes through a projector to a video that shows up on a screen. That process, when film was shot, it doesn't already have the complete grading uh, the environment that the scene most scenes are shot in a log world even film shot log and it's a flatter image which is basically intent on capturing the environment color adds I would say probably the flavoring to a scene um, the specialness the emotion um, and, and that's one way to think about film, a lot of times uh, with coloring, it's very subjective. There's really no right or wrong. Everybody, you might like something that's a little more warm. I might like make it a little cool and desaturated. No one can say that's wrong or right. But what I do when I'm working with the client is everybody has a vision. Someone, a lot of people have an emotion of what they're trying to uh, uh, basically communicate to the audience. I try and take their visual cues, their emotional cues, and bring it to the screen. And uh, it's technical, it's, um, it's uh, artistic, but I also consider it psychological because you are bringing the human mind, the col- uh, closure, because like I said, it's very subjective. Everybody has different opinions. And when you have do- different opinions in the room, how do you bring that room and say, yes, that image looks the best for that scenario. It transcends the emotion that I'm trying to do. So that's what I try and do. A lot of people just think it's artistic and it's technical, but I almost feel like I'm I'm part-time psychi- psychologist in there as well, because I have to make the, you know, I have to basically make the person feel like, yes, this image, it looks good. It matches the next scene and the whole piece flows from one to another. So how do you approach differently color for things like documentary
0: or a, or a music video versus a film or like a narrative film that has a look like a base underlying feel and look.
1: Right. Well, um, do- music, music videos were, I almost look back on that, uh, Genre in the medium as being the wide open. You had no rules. You could do anything. You could do anything you wanted. And I almost feel like that was probably the most creative time of my career because it was no hold barred and you could do whatever you wanted. Uh, I've done music videos for uh, Tom Petty, U2, Michael Jackson, Cher, you name it, you know, over the years. And uh, that was really um, wide open. Uh, documentaries are, um, are great because you can, you're blending everything in together. You're trying to create a piece. They're a little more challenging because things are, you have, you can have all these different sources and you have to wrap them up into this one recipe, uh, and make it consistent. Um, sometimes, if the foot in with, with all different things, different cameras, now, uh, everyone's using a multitude of sources and codecs and stuff. So, and you'll Steph- have archival in there too. Yeah. So basically, and, and Stephanie, uh, we'll have to rear all these elements in and put them in a kind of cohesive, good technical form. So then they can be manipulated. And, uh, that's always an, a, uh, um a mixed bag because especially on the last dance, we would get these video files from the nineties that were transcoded probably who knows how many times over the years. And each time they're transcoded, it's almost like a Xerox copy. You could lose information, the blacks could be stepped on, you could lose highlight detail, black detail. So it's always a mixed bag and we were getting all these sources from all over the place and we needed to basically refine them, make them seem seamless, and also intercut into uh, live-action footage of 16 film scans. And that was, on a documentary like that, what I do, it, it's important to make it all blend, but it's also not so much what I do is what you don't see in a in point, where if you don't feel things not cutting uh, well and uh, bringing you out of the... Uh, message or the, the theme or the scene. And on Last Dance, for example, there was 16 millimeter film intercut with uh, bad archival video from the 90s, and they're seamlessly intercut with action. So those took a little bit more of a, a little bit more of time to blend those together.
0: Do you spend time like digging back for archival and try and find the ver- earlier versions or better versions of stuff?
2: Uh, it's working with the offline team with that. We have a great relationship to say you know they've done their best to try to find the best quality footage they can. And as Rob's saying, when we're stringing it together and seeing it cohesively, uh, we'll question: Hey, is there any way? We, is there anything better out there than this, or where it falls in line? It's not smoothly transitioning is there anything else we can find or um regardless of if we can find it or not just what we have have we done our best to transcode it properly to bring it to its best level um trying to think with some of a lot of the docs with the different archive, did everything, even though it's the same shot, did it come in two different flavors? Why is that? Is there something that we can improve to make sure that everything from that one camera or that one source looks as best in its raw source that we get it? So when Rob has it, he has the latitude to be able to creatively play with it.
0: So what is the difference in a post-world environment? I think it's interesting to talk about offline versus online and what onlining is.
2: Yeah, I think there's a divide in, in people's understanding where we differentiate. Is we say, offline is when you're in the editorial space. It's been shot, you're cutting it now into your feature, your episodic, your commercial. You're taking your different cuts from set and editorially putting the piece together when we transition to online, what we're saying is maybe an offline, you were working just in your proxy, in your low res media, because you didn't need the high res yet. You have so much assets to work with. You're trying to make your storage footprint very small,
0: right? Like maybe it's an anamorphic film. It's, you know, 3k and it's really slowing down the process. So you make an HD offline or a 720 offline of it. So you can just have more processing power.
2: Exactly. There's no need to be editing in your 4k. If you have hours of footage, it's just going to slow you down so for efficiency most people will cut in their proxy like you said any type of low res then when we transition to online what we'll do is now instead of having hundreds of hours of content we'll take your one hour of content uh, transition that to your 4k master and then from there we're in our online phase we're working with a conform artist to transition that to 4k to make sure whatever platform you were editing in and whatever platform you're going to finish in that those effects that you use do those transition are they slightly different between let's say avid and resolve or premiere and baselight just how can we uh, I like to say we're like the executors. We want to make sure we're not changing your creative vision. We're we're executing it and enhancing it and making sure we're getting you what you want. So from offline in that edit world and the platform you're in, does that transition to the exact feel that you want in our online online being conform, color, mix, VFX deliver
0: Absolutely. I, and if you were using, back in the day, if you were shooting like something that was DV cam or whatever, you'd also, or like HDV or something, you might have proxy files that then have to be relinked to the actual original tape at full resolution. And that's like a whole process in and of itself, because now you have tape rooms, you have machines that are really, really specific, and it's a very complicated process.
2: Exactly. And we do a lot of, uh, in addition to, you know, commercial episodic feature, we do a lot of live to tape events. So a lot of times it's multicam and they're filming an event with, you know, 12 ISOs. And so that technology there as well, those cameras will be recording a proxy and a high res so we can just split it right off the bat. Low res go to offline. They start doing their cut our world in finishing and online. We already have the high res. We're just waiting for your final sequence so we can get going.
0: So when you take a series like the last dance, what is a typical, like what is the time frame on that for finishing?
2: That's a great question. Last dance is unique in the sense of we got three episodes in on site before pandemic hit. So Last Dance a little unique in that we really pivoted our workflow only after three episodes and and transitioned to remote for the last seven. And what's also unique about Last Dance is the original time frame had us delivering months later. Then, of course, with the pandemic and the lack of sports, the, the void needed to be filled. So the powers that be decided to push up the release, the air date of it, and that condensed our schedule
1: what are all the
0: steps i mean i guess like so if i've made a film i'm an indie filmmaker i've shot my this is i've spent all my money all my parents money all my friends money i've put everything i have into this thing on a hard drive here and now i want to hopefully take it to a festival get distribution and make a billion dollars how what is what do i do with my my film on my hard drive
2: Yeah. And that's where our team would come in and help walk you through that process. So you have your film, you finished it, you're cut in offline. Now what we want to do is we will have a conversation with you one. We want to take it through online and finishing. So uh, we'd ask, you know, what, what did your, what were your sources? What did you cut in? Do we need to uprise that material? We'll, you know, gather your source assets Uh, for last dance. It was unique that, a lot of the episodes weren't finished being cut yet. So we couldn't properly consolidate all the media because we didn't know what media was going to be used at that time. So we scrambled to plug as many drives in as we can copy as much media so we could remotely access all those assets. So back to what you're saying, just taking those assets, compiling everything, what would we need to, uh, to up-res, to high risk, Do things need to be converted? Uh, a lot of the time, the indie filmmaker won't know what their final delivery spec is. And we want to be able to set up the project accordingly so we know what to finish in. A lot of times with the indie filmmakers, that's not that answer's not there yet. So we'll try to stay as close to the source as we can and make it as versatile at the end so we could transition it into whatever type of deliverables are needed for whatever platform or theatrical release that it's going to. So once we've online it, then we'll go through... Color phase with Rob. Rob would take a look at it. What needs to be? What's the director's vision? And, and Rob will go into all that color. It would go into mix. Does it need different visual effects? Does it need any cleanup work? Um, assuming everything is is cleared in the sense of, um, you know, standards Materials. and practices, dep- mm-hmm. exactly clearances. Then you know we'd make different finals that, like I said, could be used for many different purposes.
0: So, Rob, when you approach, somebody hands you a feature film, like my same feature film on my hard drive, it comes to you. And, you know, just for speaking purposes, let's say it's a Western and I've given you a bunch of references from, you know, Assassination of Jesse James and True Grit. So I'm really into Roger Deakins, as, you know, everybody in the entire planet is. So how would you go about trying to establish what the looks is? What questions would you ask? And then how do you create a look for a film?
1: Well, uh, one thing that is helpful in creating before you're shooting a film is having a, a palette that you would like to strive, like what you had just mentioned, those films. Uh, bringing in physical references, that stills that we, we can bring in uh, so we can compare your footage to that footage and kind of meet in the middle with that is always a, uh, an important part. There's another process now that before you sh- uh, uh, bringing in the the word a LUT type of f- formula where um, which has been helpful in a few films where if you before you start shooting you actually do a test shoot and you come into our studio and we create a LUT thinking it as a basic recipe or formula that you would then look at your footage through and then you could basically be shooting with this LUT applied you don't go a hundred, a hundred percent, you go like 75% as far as getting there. Um, That is very helpful because then this way uh, the, the best case scenarios have that mindset. What's always tough is when you have someone come in and they've already shot it and you bring it on your hard drive and you're like, Oh, uh, we don't know what we want it to look like. Show us some options. Well, I can show you three million options if you want, but that takes a lot of time and that really doesn't help the process. So, whenever someone has those references, it becomes a key. And then, usually, the way I set it up is I go through some certain scenes, benchmark scenes, and apply the grade do a wide shot, do a close-up, do another close-up, and then you can kind of get a sense, does this feel right or what else do you need to do? Because sometimes people have one approach and they actually shoot it and then when they come in, they're like, that's not really working. Um, And it's also, you're looking at a still image, but then you're also looking at an image that flows. And some people forget about that flowing, that consistency from one scene to another, one image to another. We don't want things to be ab- abrupt because when things, unless it's intentionally for a shock value, most of the time is you want the audience to feel in a seamless uh Dream, formula, recipe, emotion, story, and those things uh, flowing is a key to that. And that's really a key part that I do is I create a look. And then I make that look flow seamlessly from one scene shot to another. Um, Because unfortunately now getting back earlier to what you said is when things are shot, things aren't really shot with that look. There's a lot of human error. You could be shooting out on the field and the sun's out. Then all of a sudden it gets cloudy. Well, how are you going to make that scene be cohesive when you're uh, cutting from the close-up? to the wide shot, and you basically had the sun go behind clouds in between that. Um, so those are all factors that we deal with in the color correction process.
0: Have you encountered either of you guys with, uh, especially with films or indie films? A lot of these are shot in 14, 15, 18 days. They're shooting 90, 100 pages. They're like all out. They're, they're, they're full bore production. Have you encountered things that have come across to you all and have been like, if you just known this and changed this, this thing, this is something that could really have saved you a lot of time and heartache. For instance, like you just mentioned, Rob, like, you know, paying attention to consistencies in the sun. Obviously you're hoping your cinematographer is doing that. Sometimes you just have to own it. But are there scenarios that you've run into whenever you see it and you're like, Oh man, I'm concerned about this issue.
1: Um, I'll give you the one which pops up over and over again is uh, using the same camera. Okay. We're, we're in a, basically when it was the film days, everybody like would shoot film stock. Let's shoot Kodak. Let's shoot one film stock. Yeah. Let's do that. Now, unfortunately with different cameras, uh, go cameras, iPhones, every camera, people think that they can shoot a scene on every different camera and then bring it in. And we're supposed to make it blend. Well, it would be the same scenario, Back in the film days, no one would say, Let's shoot a scene on ACVA, let's shoot a scene on Kodak, and let's shoot one of the shots on Fuji, and now let's see if you can make it all match. You wouldn't do that. You would want that consistency. So sometimes now, I would probably say that having, sometimes you can't for budget and they want coverage and they have a B camera and stuff like that. But if you could make one Kodak, one camera, this way things are all being received by one sensor. And rather than every sensor and every type of camera is different and the way it receives the image is different. So if you can limit that, I think that's a huge uh, scenario. Most of my problems over the years, whether it be commercials or uh, movies or television shows or independent movies, is then uh, it seems like using a different camera uh, is you the lighting. Usually you can we can have little tricks, we can window things, we can play with the contrast to make them blend. But if the image just has a different feel and it's technically embedded, it's a little tougher to come back from.
0: So I wanna ask the same question to you, Stephanie, but you, you made a question I love to ask colorists. If you had the option, Rob, between resolution or color science, so meaning would you rather have 1080 footage of a certain sensor or would you rather have 6K footage of this? Which one do you feel like you get more manipulation out of?
1: Um, I would probably say the, 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 resolu- the 6K footage is nice, but for me is the image filming. Okay, there's some scenarios out there where people tend to like love the resolution and say, yeah, that's great. But if the sensor is not filmic and it doesn't handle the highlights and the shadows close to film, um, I would rather take a filmic HD image than a non um, just going for full out sensor stuff. And I've even had that conversation with some special effects uh, supervisors, that they always tend to go for the higher resolution because they want a manipulation and for the mats and uh, for all the pixels and stuff. But at the end of the day, as a colorist, how does that image feel and uh, the integrity of that image and does it feel filmic? Or does it feel artificial? That's the thing that's going on now a lot with his HDR images, high dynamic range. Uh, A lot of shows now, uh, Last Dance wasn't high dynamic range. A couple shows that I'm doing now, we're delivering in high dynamic range. So instead of um, basically uh, SDR is dealing with, think of it as a football field of zero to a hundred yards. All right. With HDR, you're dealing with a football field from zero to a thousand all right, of tonality. And um, that is, um, it's a different venue because people find that even though it might be more real and you might be capturing that tonality, it's not as, uh, it's not as filming. So some people don't really uh, feel that that is um, a representation. In fact, I haven't really met too many DPs that like the HDR images, but now we're trying to be future proof with all these deliveries for all these different shows that we're doing. Um, We're doing SDR as well as HDR and all these different specs.
0: I wanna talk about HDR in a few minutes, but first, Stephanie, let's dig back to that first initial question. Things that you've encountered in your past um, that would maybe be good, or be gotchas for first time or early filmmakers.
2: Yeah, one thing for sure that came to mind is just making sure you know, as much pre-production as you're doing, making sure you're using the right camera for the right look you want. There's a lot we can do in post. We can clean up a lot of things, but we're limited to what the source you're giving us is. So for example, if you're using a camera that's going to inherently embed a lot of noise and that's the look, but you didn't want that look, there's things we can do to clean that up, but we're limited, we can't remove 100% of it, things yeah, like that. Yeah, not,
0: d- not without sacrificing other things in the image also. So, Stephanie, I digital delivery, you've been working in it for quite some time, I think for as long as I've known you, and you were in very, very early with the iTunes deliveries and even Netflix deliveries. Those are not easy. <laughs>
2: Yeah. And actually, one of the things we we had started was because it was so overwhelming that uh, Amazon, iTunes, Netflix had all their different specs. The technical specs can be very overwhelming for a a producer who's looking at this as a a filmmaker. Like that's not something they're aware of that they need to know that um, we have to deliver in certain frame rates and certain textless and international and each Delivery has its own needs for different platforms. So, we were originally, you know, trying to create uh, a way to combine all the different needs and make it easier uh, for a filmmaker to understand the basics of what you need to deliver. You're going to have to deliver your file. You're going to have to deliver possible, um, you know, different metadata of each of those files. A closed captioning. Our filmmakers aware that that may be a thing. That localization needs. Um, uh, different images, you know, different publicity. So there's just, and each of those have their own different needs. Uh, also how to re-deliver, are you making changes? And it's not just a simple, Oh, let me redeliver everything again. There's different steps that each of these platforms have.
0: Yeah. And managing all of that can be quite overwhelming. Um, I remember, talk just briefly about, because I think one of the big hopes of most um, filmmakers is international sales to like recoup film or recoup their, their costs. And I remember doing my first international deliveries ever, and they all came back with crazy QC notes and things that I just wasn't expecting. And it was very overwhelming as an artist the first time.
2: Yeah, I think for international, a lot of different things, uh, even from your mix, you know, is there different censorship needs you need? Is there different translation needs? Uh, uh, You know, a more common thing now is audio description, which was more prevalent in Canada and Europe, not as much here. But are you going to need the, and what audio description is, is essentially describing what's happening for the visually impaired who are watching television. Character A throws this to character B, you know, that's a whole other Set, uh, that needs to be created that needs to be re- scripted recorded timed properly and delivered um, different frame rates you know people are, may not be aware that uh, u.s has different frame rates in other parts of the world so when now converting your film is that going to introduce uh, different cadence issues different mix issues different pitch issues if it has to be shortened because of the different frame rate so these are things that people aren't aware of and again We're still going to get you the film you need, but there is just these different steps and different manipulations that need to happen to get it to its final destination.
0: Absolutely. Rob, HDR. Let's talk about that for just one second. So in my experience, it's very similar to what you were kind of describing. I've never really dug the big whole HDR thing. I think it's kind of, for me, it feels very, it feels like 8K Broadcast it feels very technical and not really mood or emotion or story based at all to me. And in my experience, and I have a very limited experience with this, so this is kind of my question for you. I've really only only seen it be effective in highlight areas, like where the sky was kind of blown out, or you couldn't get, you know, a nice dynamic highlight roll off in an SDR image.
1: Have Have that been your experience too? It has Mo- mostly where you're going to see it is in the highlights, and really where I feel like As a colorist, I get most of my bang is in skies because you get all the subtleties in the uh, sky that in SDR, that area will just be clipped. So it'll be flat line. You just don't get that information. You don't get the subtleties. HDR opens that whole spectrum up. There's one thing I just wanted to add with Stephanie, which is on this other show that I'm doing right now with international deliverables with HDR is that sometimes each one has their own spec. So I'm doing this show that is actually, we have to deliver in P3D65 HDR, but the international specs is RAC 2020. So we actually have to do it twice, once for domestic HDR, then versus international HDR as well. Um, I haven't really found, I haven't worked with one DP that really likes HDR. Uh, I feel... Um, sometimes the show that I'm working on now for Hulu, the DPs, basically the look of the show is an SDR look, but so I'm actually trying to make the show look like SDR in HDR. So how do you do that? Well, the whites, basically, I just kind of bring down, I almost kind of make them, I actually do the opposite because They don't, the DPs don't want those zingy whites that are in highlights and stuff like that. They don't like the look of it. They find it looks artificial and it's not cinematic or filmic. Um, And that's really it, I think, which is HDR, is that the highlights tonality is not filmic, it's real. But sometimes real is not always good.
0: (laughs) I'd like to know on a typical time frame, what do you typically ask for to finish a feature film, to do all these deliverables and manage them? And I know that it can vary, but just kind of trying to, you know, rule of thumb it here.
2: Yeah, it's a tough answer because it completely varies. Sometimes we're uh, held up just by the schedule of what it is. And then a lot of it, too, depends on QC. Does it Has it already gone through QC? Do we have to factor that in our schedule? And now that's another week of waiting for it to go through, have the notes come back, make the changes, and then deliver. Um, you know, a lot of times, too, there's always those last-minute changes, of course, hard to factor in for but you know now the technology is there that you can change things last minute Not that we always should, but it just adds more time. Um, Also, it depends on what the deliverables are. You know, a lot of times now, like Rob and I have worked on, oh gosh, multiple, multiple projects that have gone from episodic to theatrical, theatrical to episodic. So when we're starting, that timeline already varies because we're creating it in one world and then Rob has to transition it to another color space world. And ultimately at the end, we have a project that's ready for both episodic and theatrical
0: do you both make different versions for like a theatrical run and then an, like an online distribution
1: mm-hmm. well, well we, 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 what we do is for the theatrical that's in a different color space so that's a p3 that's the image is basically simulated to be projected reflected light and uh a different gamma P, you know p3 uh 2.6 gamma for anything on tv anything streaming if they're going to look at it on a computer or on a television, that needs to be in RAC 709, HDR, and it's a different gamma. So each one of those, we usually try and say, well, what's basically start with our hero. What's our hero? And, and that's where we spend all our time and energy getting that perfect. And then once that is kind of signed, sealed, and delivered, and it kind of goes back to visual closure, once you lock that in, then um, we basically create the other versions uh, that are needed for deliverables, the REC 709, uh, P3 to REC 2020, um, and down the line, all the, all the deliverables that people request.
2: And similar workflow for mix on that end, we will mix it at a theatrical level and then adjust that mix for a broadcast level.
0: Absolutely. All right. So you guys, obviously, where can they find your work at Sim International if people want to come, you know, have your their film finished with you all?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're located downtown. 12 Debrosis is where we're at. We have offices in Georgia for filming, Canada for filming, Canada also for mix and LA for editorial as well. So we're all over and we work, which is great collaboratively with our other divisions. So during the pandemic, we've been collaborating a lot because things are remote. So it's easier for clients, uh, their zoom recordings. We've done a ton of different zoom shows or charity shows where we're creating these different remote workflows. Rob's doing reviews remotely. We have different technology for that. Um, so it's been a, it's been an interesting pivot.
0: Rob, if people want if you want people to see your work, wherever they go.
1: Um, well I have a website, robcharada.com. Um, and I'm on Instagram and, uh, I uh, I'm an instructor as well. I actually teach a color correction class at School of Visual Arts. Um, and uh, I've been teaching there. I teach DaVinci Resolve. I've been uh, for three or four years um, uh, on the uh, adjunct faculty there. But getting back to one thing um, Stephanie said about the streaming with the pandemic, which has been kind of crazy, is that now everybody's working from home. And the show, like Last Dance, we did three episodes in the facility. Then uh, we basically had a, uh basically struggle and move everything to our home operations. Everyone, Stephanie, myself, the online, I finished. So I basically filmed, finished um, five or six episodes from my New York City apartment. Then I moved my studio or not my studio. I moved equipment upstate New York. So I wanted to get out of New York. And I've been in Rochester, New York since the beginning of May. So I actually finished the last episode in, I actually, we were, I worked on that. I colored that series in three different locations, Sim, New York, my apartment in New York and upstate New York. So it's kind of like color correction nomad and the series I'm working on now. Um, the great thing is uh, with uh, the streaming is my clients are in LA and the DP and the showrunner are in LA and I have one DP in Nicaragua. So we're trying to finish this show, and how do we do it? With Last Dance, it was a little different because we basically would down, uh, the the director would download the file and sign off. With these other shows, which a lot of tends to be the nature now, is we're streaming. So all the media is living at the computers, on the SIM media, and we're streaming this application called StreamBox to One DP who's in Nicaragua giving me sign-off, we're on a Zoom call. She's looking at it in real time. The showrunners in Los Angeles, the DP's in Nicaragua, they're both getting a feed. And it's just kind of a crazy time now where all these projects still need to make their deadline and get to the finish line. And uh, we're all kind of finishing, you know, just trying to figure it out and fine-tuning the system in the new world that we're in. It's very odd. I did the last final three SNL at home
0: shows. I did a bunch of pieces for that from my office here in my apartment. And then I just did a couple of weeks ago, something for the tonight show and global citizens. So it's just, it's very odd because you're making these pieces that, you know, you, you, you recognize the faces in them. You recognize that they are something that, you know, many people will watch hopefully. And you're what? doing it from, you know, 16 feet from where I take a shower, which is just very, very post-apocalyptic.
1: <laughs> right right. now, like crazy. I know this is where I'm working here in upstate New York, and it's my little makeshift office. And I've actually, I think I've, I'm up to about 12 shows remotely since uh, the middle of March that uh, work still needs to get done. People still, it all has to keep moving somehow. And that's what we're all trying to do with all our resources, with the, uh, uh, our online, with Stephanie, the producers, just trying to keep everything, Moving forward. So, Steph, if people want to find you, where can they find you?
2: Yeah, you can find my work on IMDb, Stephanie Paciano.
0: Uh, guys, this, is a, this has been a blast. Like, this is a whole lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk and do this. I mean, honestly, I think we could talk for another hour and really get into the nitty gritty of it. But
2: what I, what I would say, just as kind of um, thoughts for independent filmmakers now, I know we're partial, but don't underestimate budgeting in for color mix delivery. I know a lot of filmmakers we've seen feel like they can do it on their own and they try and they do it or they get so far and then we clean it up. It's just the, the color and mix with the professionals just take it to the next level. And, and it's just going to make the workflow smoother things that they may not even be aware of that we are just doing on a daily basis to just efficient and speed up your time. It's, it's just valuable.
0: I've done a short film three years ago that I colored was really happy with um then started working with another colorist and was like you know and revisited it and he colored it and i can tell you firsthand it is absolutely worth it like it is just that extra 10 15 don't care how experienced you are just having that extra artist play in that and they can take part in that process it just makes the work better it just does and it, so i you know yeah and as far as budgeting i think it can be very hard to get those numbers i think what's you should do is reach out to your local, you know, reach out to a company, get some, you know, say, Hey, here's what I'm doing try and partner with them before you shoot when you're raising your finances so you can find out how much it will cost. And Completely how long it will agree. Take.
2: And if there's you know not a hard deadline, there's so many different ways to make it work. Maybe it's uh, holding on while there's an opening at the facility and, and kind of doing it in some downtime for a different cost. There's so many ways to make it work. And, and that's our passion is taking your project to the next level. And we just want to do that as much as we can.
3: great conversation, man. I love talking to, I love talking to them. I was great to hear from uh, Stephanie again, and um, it was great to hear from Rob as well. So what kind of takeaways do you have here? I mean, it, it bites so
0: many filmmakers in the ass, like delivery. Like, I mean, you just don't think about it. Um, and if you don't have the deliverables, you can't sell it, you know? And that's, we really didn't even get into the weeds too deep um, because, Delivery to online platforms, yeah, sure, you can upload to, you can make a quick time with a stereo file and upload it to Amazon Streaming, you know what I mean, or even Amazon TVOD. That doesn't necessarily mean it's optimized that the viewer's going to have a good experience, but that's not what we're really talking about. What I was talking about with her was much more, like, larger scope, much more... Um, you know, uh, how, if you don't have the right masters and deliverables for certain region
3: internationally, they won't buy it. So you might not be able to sell it, which is going to limit your ability to recoup. It's huge. And I just think that a lot of filmmakers don't, as you said, don't necessarily think about all of this and don't have the experience in it. You know, they usually have experience making their movie and they've done everything they can do to get their movie made. And they're just not experienced and, um, and in the know about this, you know, I think I'll, a lot of the experience, uh, the first experience, a lot of filmmakers have with deliveries is when they have to give it to a film festival and the film mm-hmm. festival says, Oh, you have to have these specs. And that's just a very basic thing.
0: Right. I, I mean, and know. those are even pretty flexible, but I mean, you for a theatrical release, if you're going to do any kind of run in that, or you're going to screen at, you know, one of those big festivals, right. you got to have the right deliverable. And that is pretty daunting. Uh, I mean, I think the big takeaway of that is don't, leave it till you've shot the movie like reach out when you're doing your fundraising and your budgeting and find who's going to finish your film find the people you want to work with then and bring them in then and get figure out what you can afford and work with them from the beginning
3: yeah don't wait until you have your film all on a hard drive or a few hard drives and you don't know where everything is and also organize all your assets that that's another thing that i think a lot of filmmakers are notoriously bad for you know uh they don't always keep in mind not just your movie but every little sound effect, music track, uh, anything that's in your project file make sure you have all of that stuff consolidated backed up um, and and in one place so that you can give it to a copy of it to uh, the finishing place
0: right like the licenses and stuff We didn't even get so so about Rob though let's talk about that I mean it's it is crazy doing things like Last Dance you know what I mean from your your apartment. It's just such a crazy time, you know, and I actually really liked the way he explained the color and HDR and all that. It was it's kind of a new take that I'd never really heard before about HDR, you know, as you know, other DPs not really liking it and having to work with it. And, you know, most people feel so into the tech and I don't feel like that's, you know, the, for me, it's all about the emotion and it's the mood. And that's what Rob seemed to echo.
3: I found that super super interesting as well. I think when a new technology comes out, everyone kind of geeks out on it. And that might not necessarily, that might sometimes overshadow the actual application for it. Right. They both, they both their advice in both scenarios was use
0: a camera that you want the, the same camera and a camera is going to introduce a little noise. I mean, budget obviously restricts many people. But if you are gonna be working in a lower budget, you'd be better off to have the same type of camera. So even if you're gonna do low budget, you know, do DSLRs or you know, even iPhones, Rob's talking about coloring iPhones. Just use keep it consistent so that you can set yourself up for success.
3: Filmmaking is a collaborative experience and so is this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at framework underscore productions for upcoming episode announcements and leave your questions in the comments for our future guests. The first 10 to comment are immediately entered to win a monthly prize. Please take a second to subscribe so you know about future episodes and leave a review. It really does help us. For more information about today's guest, visit independentfilmmakersguide.com to see visuals, diagrams, and to see links to the episode in video and article form. IFG is a community, and we want to help you in your filmmaking process.
1: Hey, I'm Brandon Bayless, an actor in New York City, and I'm reading the credits. IFG is produced by Framework Productions and directed by James Alvarez. It's produced by Matt Mundy, edited by Audrey Ray McHale, and hosted by Stephen Pierce. The music is by GlassPlay. Find his music on freemusicarchive.org. Thanks for listening.
4: Hey, friends, we just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about two personal things. First, we wanted to thank you, our listening community, and our wonderful guests, learning so much together along the way and continuing to learn sharing our stories, making a lot of new friends, and collaborating, which is exactly what this is all about. Which also brings me to my second point. In great part to many of these new relationships, we wanted to let you know that we've taken a lot of this advice ourselves and made our own narrative feature film, Heard. H-E-R-D, Heard, Herd, which is premiering this October on Friday the 13th in select theaters as well as on VOD. Personally, I think it's the perfect kind of scary movie to watch during our favorite scary season. So we'd love for you to celebrate with us and watch Herd. You can pre-order it on Apple TV and of course, do the communal thing, see it in theaters. Of course, for all of this, please see our show notes, but basically, we're going to keep it all updated at herd.film. That's h-e-r-d.film. herd.film as well thank you again. And be sure to give us a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to build this community and collaborate. IFG, how movies get made.